Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Katoa. Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. How are things for you? This is episode number 28, recorded in October 2021, and today I talk with Amy Best. Amy is an expert registered nurse at Wellington Intensive Care Unit here in New Zealand, where she has worked for the last 10 years. She's also a teacher at Massey University School of Nursing, teaching several courses in the Bachelor of Nursing program there. And on top of that, this year she's begun her PhD and has undertaken qualitative research exploring survivors' experiences following long-term intensive care admission. Her research will focus on both patient and family experiences within the New Zealand context and uses a narrative inquiry approach. Amy is a passionate long-term patient advocate and she has co-led significant quality improvement work around the care of long-term patients in the ICU and has been involved in planning and delivering focused education around care of this group to nurses in several New Zealand intensive care units. In this episode, we talk about getting to know our patients, challenges and solutions around caring for long-term patients, how fragile these patients are and how we can humanise and value them as a person. Amy also discusses how to get creative and care to break down the monotony and boredom for our long-term patients and how getting the fundamentals of care right is so important. Also some great ideas for education around care of our long-term patients. So grab a cuppa, sit back and have a listen to the interview with Amy Best. Amy, thank you for joining me today. This is really exciting. Um, we've finally managed to connect uh, <laughs> due to COVID lockdowns and things. Um, so I'm up here in Auckland, currently in level three lockdown. Uh, you're in Wellington and yep. um, enjoying a little bit more freedom, but still not uh, quite <laughs> business as, as normal, is it, down that way? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Rachel, for having me on the podcast and providing me with an opportunity to, you know, talk about how we can care for um, our long-term patients and things. Nice to yeah. be here. <laughs> oh, no, it's really exciting. And I think, um, you know, being able to look at our longer-term patients from a different perspective and see how we can, you know, deliver our best care to them and look after them and ourselves and, mm. you know, be really creative around this is going to be hugely exciting for people who are listening. So thank you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, your career so far? Sure, yeah. So um, I have been nursing for about 12 years now. Um, I'm a, a Massey graduate and I started out my nursing career um, working on a very busy tertiary general surgical um, and vascular ward um, and I loved it. Um, it was dynamic, it was fast paced, um, the acuity of the patients was really high. So, so it was a great place to learn. Um, mm. And I was there for two years. And then I got to a point where I just sort of thought, okay, I want to learn more. I had a curiosity to sort of understand more about caring for people who are really unwell and to learn about the different body systems um, and so I sort of thought, okay, well, ICU is the logical place to go for that, right? Yeah. Um, and I remember as a surgical ward nurse, you know, um, taking handovers from the ICU nurses that were so impressive because they were so comprehensive and they really knew their patients and the problems well. And then I'd had um, interactions with the PAR nurses, right, the outreach nurses, um, who again I just thought had this wealth of knowledge and I started to really look up to them as role models so I made the move to ICU um, 
and have been in ICU for the last 10 years and I absolutely love it. I love that in ICU, um, it's very stimulating intellectually, um, but also you get to provide really high quality person and family-centered care um, in that environment, uh, which is something that I'm passionate about. Um, so probably four years into my ICU career, I had done all of the things that I wanted to do. I'd finished my master's, I'd done an outreach rotation, um, done my PDRP and thought, okay, now's the time for me to go and get some experience elsewhere. Um, because I've been told that it was it would be really good for my practice um, to go and work in some different ICUs and see how people do things in other places. Um, and so I joined a nursing agency and I went to Australia and I was over there for about 18 months. Um, and when I first joined the nursing agency, they said to me, so where do you want to go? Where do you want to work? And I said, well, I don't really want to go Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, because I'd been there before for holidays. And I kind of wanted to go off the beaten track a little bit and have a new experience. So they said to me, well, what about Tasmania? They're really, really short of ICU nurses and it's a gorgeous, um, gorgeous spot. And so I said, oh, I'll call you back. Let me have a think about it. And I talked to my parents and I did some Googling and I thought, oh my God, this place looks beautiful. And so I moved to Hobart and um, yeah, initially thought I'd just do six weeks, but ended up staying for 10 months and then wanted to get out of Hobart for the winter, went to Melbourne, was there for six months and worked in a number of different ICUs in Melbourne. Um, and then got to a point where I was ready to come home because of family and um, mm. all those things. New Zealand's a pretty cool place to live. And returned to Wellington ICU, but also received a phone call from um, Claire Minton, who was working for Messi. And she was actually my academic supervisor for my master's uh, clinical project. So she knew me mm. and she knew how I think and how I work and said, would you like to um, come and do some teaching at the School of Nursing? And I was kind of shocked because I'd actually never considered education as a career pathway. Mm. Um, but I thought about it and, and had some more conversations with her and thought, oh, this is a really cool opportunity to um, learn some new skills but also to contribute to the future workforce, right? And to share my passion for quality, evidence-based nursing, um, person-centered care with the next generation of nurses mm -hmm. and hopefully, you know, do some role modeling myself. So I said yes. And, and for the last three years, I've been working two days a week at the School of Nursing, um, teaching our third-year nursing students and two days a week in Wellington ICU. Mm. What a great um, yeah. combination, eh? Yeah. 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 And still being able to, you know, maintain your clinical skills and keep up to date because we know how quickly everything changes um, in the clinical environment too. So, yeah. yeah that's, that's right. And um, I think the students really value um, my clinical currency. And yeah and the stories that I can bring into mm. the classroom that help them understand the theory that we're teaching. So, yeah. yeah. And then life's got very busy this year by um, starting my PhD. So <laughs> just to add to all of that. <laughs> I know, crazy. I know. So we'll come back to your PhD. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us um, briefly about Wellington ICU because, um, you know, for people who are listening in, how yep. big is it? What sorts of patients do you see? Yeah, so um, we're a, a very large tertiary ICU. Um, we've got 24 beds and we're a mixed ICU. So we care for, you know, your postdoc cardiacs, neurosurgery, um, medical, pediatrics, really broad. Um, and it's a fantastic ICU to work in. It's one of the reasons why I came back from Australia is because the, the leadership and the culture 
within that unit is absolutely absolutely fantastic. And as a nurse, we're very well supported there. Um, yeah, so that's Wellington ICU. Um, Currently recruiting for staff like every other ICU oh, around the country too. <laughs> I know, we are, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone's interested. Can't get enough. <laughs> yeah, plenty of opportunities everywhere, aren't there, mm. at the moment? Mm. Yeah. Yep, absolutely, yeah. So tell us what makes a good day for you when you go to work in the ICU? Um. Well, a good day for me would actually probably be caring for my favourite group of patients <laughs> who are the long-term ICU patients. So people will, will know them as long-stay patients, long-term patients. There's a, a number of different terminologies used to describe them, but fundamentally they're patients who, um, who spend probably a week or more in the intensive care unit, I would say. Um, again, there's huge variation in the literature when it comes to defining a long-term patient and there actually is no um, uniform definition or mm. consensus but I would think of a long-term patient um, as someone who's in the ICU for probably seven days or more um, often when the when the patient first comes in and you hear this story and you see how unwell they are in front of you you can quite accurately predict that they will have a long stay. Um, yeah, so for me, a good day is looking after long-term patients. Um, and as I said, that's that's a group of patients that I have um, developed a real passion for nursing. So when I was doing my master's, probably halfway through my, my master's, I had my first experience caring for a long-term ICU patient. Um, and this was a man who was quite young and had Guillain-Barre. And I was incredibly moved by his experience and what he was going through. Um, and it coincided with me being able to, through my studies, really start to read up on the literature around this patient group and reflect on how how we care for them really um, and what I learned through caring for that patient and subsequent patients after him and then the postgraduate study was that actually long-term patients are a really unique group within the ICU they are very different to most of the other patients that we are traditionally accustomed to caring for right they're extremely unwell they experience really complex and multidimensional problems, including physiological problems, physical, psychological, emotional, social, um, across their entire illness course, really. And then if we think about the clinical characteristics of this patient group, right, the defining features, again, we can see that they're really, really unwell. Um, prolonged dependence on mechanical ventilation, right, which often necessitates a trachea and then a slow, burdensome respiratory wean, tracheostomy wean, multiple organ failure, not just one organ system that's failing, but multiple, um, severe shock, recurrent complications, high rates of infection, high rates of sepsis, um, critical illness weakness, all of the acute psychological problems that these patients experience, like delirium, anxiety, acute stress disorders, depression, low mood, poor sleep. Um, so I, I started to really reflect on, actually, this is a really complex group of patients um, and that the long-term patients' needs differ significantly to other ICU patients. Um, and I could see that there was a gap in the education that nurses were getting around the complexity of this patient group and the training that they were getting and how to effectively care for them. So that sort of led me down a path of um, being involved in some kind of quality improvement um, initiatives within my own unit to mm -hmm. 
to improve our overall kind of standard and quality of care for this group of patients um, who we recognised, you know, there were a number of inconsistencies. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do you think part of that is because, you know, you just listed, talked about a whole yeah. range of, you know, symptoms as such yeah. that these patients um, experience. But do you think we're not that wonderful at actually picking up on some of these? So things yep. like sleep disturbance, for instance, mm -hmm. um, or mood changes. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about the experiences that patients go through and the challenges they probably face that we're, you know, a little yeah. bit maybe I think, oblivious I think to. Yeah, I think a, a, there's a number of things there um, that probably contribute to us not necessarily um, picking up on all of those things. Number one would be the model of care that we work with in the biomedical model, right, um, which obviously influences nursing and influences um, the work that we do, the focus on tasks, the focus on monitoring, interpreting physiological data, prioritizing that side of things um, as opposed to uh, um, another model or or just adding to that other models that encompass the psychological needs of the patient and encourage nurses to reflect on the whole of person. Um, so I think, yeah, the biomedical dominance impacts that, but also just, just a lack of education and a lack of knowledge you know, and once nurses actually have insight into the complexities and the challenges that these patients face, then they're more likely to see it in front of them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I guess acknowledging that um, nurses on the whole, I would suggest, mm. find this a really challenging group of patients to look after, right? Yeah, they do. Yeah. When you walk in yeah. at the beginning of a, a day yeah. shift, <laughs> night shift, and you're told that you're looking after the long-term patient and, you know, bed space, whatever, how do people react? And what, you know, are some of the thought processes, I guess, going on for nurses when mm. they're told who they're looking after? Mm. I think it's probably different for everyone. Um, but I think one of the challenges is when, you know, you're allocated a long-term patient who's been in the unit for three weeks or four weeks, five weeks, and you've never cared for that patient before. And so there's a lot of anxiety around not knowing the patient, not knowing their routine, not mm -hmm. knowing all of the little things that matter to that patient, um, not knowing um, the things that cause them distress and suffering and knowing what to do about it. Mm -hmm. So the unknown is a source of anxiety for nurses. But then also, you know, um, these patients can can sometimes uh, display behaviours that can be a little bit difficult for nurses. Nurses in the literature describe these patients as sometimes demanding, um, as challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that for the patient, something's wrong. Yeah. And they're trying to communicate that something's wrong to us. I remember reading a study um, that's really stuck with me. And the study looked at uh, long-term patients' attempts at initiating communication with nurses, right? And what the study showed was that, first of all, these patients are so exhausted, right, that for them to actually initiate communication with the nurse. Because remember, they can't talk because they've got a tracheostomy. They can't write because they're so weak that they can't even hold a pen. So for them to actually initiate communication with the nurse means that it's something important. And then the study also showed that when these patients are trying to communicate with us, what they're trying to communicate is distress or suffering of some form right? So something's wrong and we need to recognize that something's wrong and then do something about it. You know, long-term patients are so fragile. They are literally on the precipice of coping um, that when something's wrong, 
they need it rectified immediately. Yeah. And so I think, I think for nurses, just paying really close attention to the patient, recognizing those nonverbal cues um, that, that they're starting to get uncomfortable, that something's not quite right. And then saying to them, look, this does matter. I know it might take time for us to figure it out, but I want to help you and we will figure it out so that you feel better. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And working with the patient. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So does that so answer t- <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, in terms of communication strategies, um, I guess taking a step back, though, in terms of understanding our patients to start out with, how can we work towards that and actually identifying and knowing what matters to our patients when we walk into their bed space? Yeah, that's a really good question, Rachel. Um, And I think that speaks to us as nurses valuing getting to know the person right? We've got really good clinical knowledge of the patient's clinical status and all of the medical problems that they have. Um, But we also need to incorporate our knowledge of knowing the person. Um, And so, you know, often, most often, actually, these patients can't talk to us. So we need to engage with the family um, to find out about them and to try and understand um, all of the little things that make that person who they are and that make a difference. Um, this is one of the challenges nurses face as well. And so I think handing over that sort of information is really important. Um, when we think about our nursing handover, we're often really systems focused and we focus on the kind of medical issues yeah. and stuff, clinical stuff. But I think what's important for long-term patients is that we actually kind of write down all of the little things that are going to make a difference for that patient. And that makes the nurse's job so much easier, you know? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if you can walk into the bed space and know a little bit about them in real life, where they've come from, who they are, um, maybe how they react to different situations. Yeah. um, How they process information. Yeah. And, um, and so one of the things that, that, that we do in the ICU that I work in is with these patients is we have these big kind of mobile whiteboards that mm-hmm. we like to put in the patient's room where obviously the patient can see it, but also the staff can see it. And on the whiteboard, we encourage the family to bring in lots of photos of that person and their family, and we stick them up. And that's a really cool way of um, humanising the bed space and and um, you know bringing the, the the family into the bed space in that regard, but also a way of enabling the staff, the clinical staff, to see the person behind the illness. Right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's always one of the tensions, isn't it? As an ICU nurse, is that um, you haven't usually. Uh, met the patient or known the yeah. patient until they're, you know, yeah. maybe sedated and ventilated in front of you and you can't find out information from yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. That's um, right. Do you think it also helps the patient seeing those photos? Yeah, I think I think potentially. Um, from my experience, patients seem to like it, you know, just being able to see um, see pictures of their family members and, you know, pets and all of that sort of thing. Um, Just as important. (laughs) Yeah, but but we do have to, you know, consider that it might not be appropriate for everyone. I can can think of one patient who actually didn't want to look at photos of his family because it reminded him of what he was missing out on and it made him sad. So just like anything, we need to see people as individuals and remember that one size doesn't fit all, you know? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Mm. How else can we work towards, you know, and you use the word humanise. Um, yeah. How can we humanise the patient in the bed in front of us? Mm, good question. Um, so I think... Obviously, getting to know them, which I'm really big on, being a fundamentals of care um, advocate. And we'll come back to that too. You can tell us a bit about that. Yep. 
Um, but integrating family-centered care, I think, is a really good way of um, humanizing the ICU experience. Um, so, you know, ensuring that we are integrating family-centered care practices, partnering with family, collaborating with family, um, involving them in the care processes. Um, and I think that's really important during the ICU phase, but also we know that when these patients leave ICU, they are still pretty unwell and they have ongoing care requirements, high levels of dependency. The family are the ones who are often providing some of that care on the wards, right? Because the wards are so busy, patient mm. bell and has to wait 15 minutes for a nurse to come and see them. That's just the reality. So often it's family who have to help them with the little things, but certainly um, be on the wards of the hospital when they get home, they take yeah. on that huge caregiver responsibility. Um, so yeah, family-centered care. And that and that's, you know, your basic things like involving family in decision-making and care planning, but also offering for them to be involved in aspects of care that are safe for them to be involved in. So um, with our long-term patients, we can think about um, teaching family members how to brush someone's teeth, right? That's something really simple that we can do. Um, some family members may actually want to help us with our turns. Hmm. Some family members may want to help us shower their loved one. Um, I've got a really beautiful example of a patient that I cared for who was a long-stay patient and um, he, he was a Polynesian man. And so just thinking of, you know, cultural safety and, um, and family-centered care in that regard. And I was caring for him about day 10 and he hadn't had a shower yet because, you know, he hadn't been well enough to get to the shower. Um, and we have really cool shower trolleys. Do you have them in Auckland? That you put we used to. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, this isn't a patient standing in a shower. This is a patient who's fully dependent, lying on a shower trolley lying. with a ventilator attached to their trackie. And I said to um, his family, look, I'd really like to take him for a shower today. What do you think? And um, the family loved the idea. And there were a number of women in the family. And then there was one other brother. And this brother had been really quiet um, most of the time that I'd seen him really just shocked and sad and all of that stuff. Mm. And all of a sudden, when I said I was going to take him for the shower, this brother spoke up and said, oh, can I help you? I'd love to help <laughs> you. Um, and so, you know, we agreed that that would be totally fine for the patient and, and the brother. And um, he helped me shower him, right? And I think the thing is, family members, they feel so helpless mm -hmm. and they really want to be helpful. They want to Doing do something. something feel like yeah. helpful so if we can think of ways that we can involve them mm. um, and enable them to feel like they're contributing then that's going to be really helpful for them yeah. yeah yeah and then the next day I had that patient and the brother comes in and he's like Amy are we going to take him for a shower again and I was like okay cool you know yeah yeah but it's the little things isn't it you know like um these huge amounts of effort but yep. so totally worth it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so much of what we do for these patients is actually, it's really tough and it can be pretty painful if we think about suctioning, right? Mm. Suctioning the trachea. If we think about turns, often turns are described in the literature as being really painful intervention. Physio, mobilization, yeah. these things are huge ordeals for these patients who are so weak and so exhausted that, um, yeah, thinking of positive, enjoyable therapeutic experiences mm. is important, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know yourself, even when you're unwell at home and, you know, you have the flu back in the days when we worried about flu, um, something like that. And, you know, and you, 
like you say, you get up and you have a shower or a bath and you feel so much better, don't you? you yeah. Know, and it's different. Yeah. So that's that sort of speaks to the humanizing, um, mm-hmm. humanizing care. Another thing I think that's important if ICUs have got the capacity to do it is um, taking patients outside, you yeah. know? So I'm really lucky the unit that I work in, it's actually standard practice now for our nurses to take the long-term patients outside um, every day if they want it, um, which, you know, is really therapeutic and really good for their mental health, um, but also has flow-on effects to um, their sleep, right? Getting them outside, exposing them to natural light, more likely to kind of regulate that sleep-wake cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And patients often you take them outside and they just describe feeling like they feel alive again you know mm. the fresh air on their face the wind in their hair yeah yeah again it's, it's like shift. walking walking out at the end of your shift isn't it and yeah getting yeah. that fresh air yeah. yeah yeah so um so those sort of things can humanize the icu environment um pet therapy right uh, yes you know, lots yes. of people have pets these days so um you know, creating opportunities for someone's dog to come in and visit. Um, we also have music therapy where where I work, where, um, in fact, it's been put on hold with COVID, I think, but um, I think it was every Tuesday we had a, a woman from the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra come in who would play the harp, oh. right? Oh, so like that beautiful, calming, soft yeah. music. Um, and she would go into long-term patients' bed spaces if they wanted that. Um, mm. Yeah, so I think that's another thing I enjoy about caring for this group of patients is the creativity mm. um, and thinking of ways in which we can not only humanise the experience for them but break down the monotony and the boredom yeah. of spending weeks and months in a hospital room sick, mm. you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, they're long days, aren't they, for patients? And I don't think yeah. they um, <clears throat> probably appreciate, you know, just how long those mm. eight hours, mm. twelve hours are. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that we they get can't get away. away. <laughs> yeah, we get to walk away at the end of our end of our twelve-hour shift, but the patient doesn't. You know, they are there until they're well enough to leave. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You were talking too about um, communication strategies, you know, mm-hmm. particularly as a lot of these are tracheostomized patients. Yeah. What are your thoughts around some strategies there? Oh, gosh. So it's really difficult communication with this group of patients. And I think that this is, <clears throat> excuse me, a real source of stress mm-hmm. um, for the nurses, obviously for the patients, but certainly for the nurses as establishing um, effective communication strategies and being able to work out what it is that the patient's trying to say to you. Um, so I wish that there was a magic answer and that there was a really effective app that we could use that would just make it so easy, but there's not as far as I yeah. know at this stage. Um, I think most people seem to be pretty poor at lip reading actually and I would say that most long-term patients will tell you (laughs) that they are Um, but you know just using your alphabet boards if the patient has the dexterity and the cognitive ability to maybe communicate via iPads um, there's usually there's usually themes in what the patients want right like if we think about the symptom load and things often patients are uncomfortable so Mm -hmm. it's you know are you uncomfortable what's wrong often they're incredibly thirsty you know they're not allowed to drink for weeks and months so again that's another thing that they that they try and communicate that they're dry and that they want some mouth cares Um, so yeah knowing what the key things are that this patient tries to communicate often and then writing it down and handing it over to the nurses can be a good start Mm. so that you know, okay, usually he tries to um, communicate with us that he doesn't like lying on his right side or whatever. Yeah, starting with that. Um, 
yeah, but it's really difficult. It's so and, hard, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I think that this is also where consistency and continuity of care is important. You know, the first time that a nurse comes on shift and looks after a long-term patient, that's a pretty challenging shift. And there's a lot of learning that goes on around learning the patient um, and, and learning about their problems, their issues, and all of the little things that make a difference for them. But usually you've worked that stuff out by the end of your first shift. And yeah. so then when you go and work subse subsequent shifts caring for that patient, it's so much easier. So although a lot of nurses may, you know, only want to spend one shift looking after these patients, actually it gets easier the more you look after them because you get to know them and then you get really quick at, you know, interpreting mm. their signals and working out um, what the problem is. Yeah. So as much as sometimes we walk in in the morning and go, oh, God, are we back in, you know, looking after Mr. So-and-so, yeah. it's often quite a, a better experience and a more rewarding experience second or third time. or That's right. Forwards. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I think just acknowledging that to the patient as well, when you come on shift and it's your first time looking after them and they've been there for weeks, is saying, look, I know that I haven't cared for you before and then I don't know you in that we're going to have to spend some time getting to know each other. But, um, you know, by the end of the day, we will have the communication sorted. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good approach, isn't it? And yeah. it's what you do in real life, isn't it, if you meet somebody for yeah. the first time? Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that kind of long-term patients can provide nurses with a real sense of professional fulfilment. Um, once you break through that stuff and you get to really know the patient because you can make such a difference to their days, right? One of the things that I have learned and that I've observed is that um, the difference engaged and compassionate nursing care that's grounded in person and family-centred care can make to these patients' days and even their outcomes is really profound. You know, the nurse can be the difference between whether or not a patient has a good day or a bad day, what you bring to that patient and that shift, you know, um, and the therapeutic role of the nurse just can't be undervalued because we see we're really, oh, the whole, no, no, that's okay, yeah. because we we can consider all of the person in our care, not just the clinical component, but the psychos, the psychological care, the emotional care, the relational care. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was going to say, do you think as, you know, the bedside nurse in the ICU, that we actually realise the impact we have? And, and you know, as you were just describing it, mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, we are very much, I don't know, task-driven, task-focused yeah. quite often that yes. you lose sight of that other impact that you have um, yep. on, on your patient or their whanau as well. Mm, potentially, so, yeah. Um, I know Claire mentioned this when she spoke to you, but something that happens really often with these patients is they will often ask the nurse at the end of the shift, who is looking after me next, right? And I know why they ask that question, but I still say to them, oh, I'll go and find out, but why? Why do you want to know? Um, and a common theme in the answers is that because not everyone wants to be here. So these patients, they know whether or not the nurse is interested in being there and caring for them. They can pick up on that. And both patients and family members can suss the vibe of the nurse out within the first half an hour, actually. And then that sets you up for the rest of your shift. Yeah. No? Yeah. So yeah. how can we, I guess, take our best selves into that bed space and mm. set ourselves and our mm. patients up for the best mm. day? Oh, good question. Um, Barring all the, disasters yeah, along the way. <laughs> one, yeah. One of the things that, that I sort of teach nurses when I'm teaching them about the fundamentals of caring for this group is that, you know, the first sort of half an hour, hour of your shift, once you've done your safety checks and all that, um, 
really should be focused on spending quality time with that patient and getting to know them. So it's all about building the therapeutic nurse-patient relationship, building that rapport, establishing trust, focusing on them, um, sitting down and engaging meaningfully with them in communication, which isn't easy, right, which we've talked about, but actually making that a priority at the start of your shift, getting to know the patient, and then they feel like they can trust you and they're more likely to um, engage in the things that we need them to do, right? Like mm-hmm. mobilization, rehab, have, have positive experiences with respiratory weaning. Yeah. So, yeah, I think just putting that time aside at the beginning of your shift um, is extremely important and sets both the patient and the nurse up. Um, for for a good shift and then same Mm. with the family you know when the family come in um, taking the time to acknowledge them and know that you know they're living in this state of uncertainty they're really worried about their loved one Um, often with long-term patients you know they develop lots of complications along the way and the family go through this phase where every day they're coming in and they're getting hit with kind of bad news Mm. so again just putting that time aside to talk to the family give them a really informative update um Mm. is important yeah make them feel welcome yeah make them feel valued it's it's sort of common sense stuff but we kind of know that common sense isn't really that common you know yeah yep yeah (laughs) Do you think we get enough in the way of um, education and training around looking after long-term mm. patients? Well, it's interesting you say that because um, one of the things that I sort of reflected on and noticed when I started caring for this patient group and understanding the complexity of them was that nurses didn't get a lot of education, actually. You know, if we think about... Um, our education programs in ICU nurses get lots of education around how to care for a post-op cardiac lots Mm. of education around how to care for people with brain injuries Um, lots of education around um, CVVHDF pediatrics whatever but what I recognized in my unit and I have worked in a number of other units and this was the same was that we'd missed long-term patients Um, And so what we did in our unit in Wellington was we recognised that actually and embarked on a journey to improve our standard of care of long-term patients and their family um, through the development of meaningful education for our staff, right? Um, And there were a number of things that we did. Would you like me to share them? Oh, yes. They're fantastic if you can. Um, So... The first thing we did was we developed a really comprehensive resource guide. Um, it's a 50-page resource guide that is dedicated to all things long-term patient and family. Um, we didn't have anything like that. So, so that's really cool. We also recognised that when we had new starters working in our ICU, they, they had to spend um, a number of shifts caring for post-op cardiacs. They had to spend a number of shifts caring for you know, um, people on ventilators, et cetera. But actually, long-term patients weren't part of that orientation package. So we made it compulsory that um, all of our new starters received two 12-hour shifts with an expert long-term patient RN um, caring for long-term patients. And so that was an opportunity for them to learn all about the unique issues and the care requirements of this patient group um, and for us to ensure that quality care and practice and um, positive attitudes were yeah. sort of instilled early. Um, another thing we did to enhance our education was that we introduced twice yearly focus weeks all around care of the long-term patient. And that included delivering theoretical education, but also scenario-based practical skills Mm -hmm. training, right? Um, We know that 
a lot of junior nurses tend to care for these patients, which is a whole other issue, but that they actually find taking a tracheostomy, fully ventilated, completely dependent patient to the shower and outside, Mm. really quite stressful. So providing them with opportunities to learn more about that and to practice. Um, So that's really cool. We, and then probably the thing that I'm most proud of is that we developed an eight hour study day all around care of the long-term patient and family. Um, which is nurse-led but multidisciplinary. So we invite members of our mm-hmm. allied health team, such as physio, SLT, palliative care, to come in and um, educate our nurses. But probably the most powerful session in that day is our patient experience talk, where we invite a former long-term ICU patient mm-hmm. uh, to to come in and to share their experience with our nurses, which you can imagine is just, it's powerful. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. that, that is the session of the day. Um, it's not nothing yeah. like hearing it from, you know, the horse's mouth, so to speak, is it? And that's hearing right. the actual experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, and also, you know, I think it's important for nurses to hear success stories Mm. patients Mm. because they are really really sick and they um, endure what nurses see as a lot of suffering um, and potentially have quite a bit of disability after their ICU stay and so nurses can experience moral distress um, compassion fatigue you know really question what we're doing but for them to see people on the other side and to see success stories um, yeah. helps them understand that, you know, we're doing this because we believe that people can get better. Um, and another thing that's quite cool is in line with that, um, every month in our staff clinical updates kind of newsletter, we profile a survivor. Mm. Yeah, and usually they're long-term patients because we want to select someone who the staff will remember and um, one of our consultants rings them up and and has a chat about life post ICU so we can then feed back to our nurses more of those Mm. success stories yeah I think that's really important isn't it and I know we've received um, on the odd occasion your newsletter because we've had patients who have come from you to us for ECMO and then gone back and um, but to be able to see how they have progressed and got better got home and that you know like you say it's all worth it yeah in the long run yeah 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 and yeah, hear so those stories things. Yeah. yeah yeah oh no that's fantastic and I think that leads quite nicely into talking about um, your chosen PhD topic as well Thank you. <laughs> scary, <laughs> nice but, segue. You know. <laughs> so tell us you're going to be looking at the experiences of long-term um, ICU patients how, how did this you know obviously it comes from your passion of looking after them yeah. but was there anything in particular that triggered this well so there's sort of my personal motivation and then my professional motivation and I think my personal motivation was very much just wanting to know what happens to these patients when they leave ICU you know what happens when they get home what is life like for them what challenges do they face what are their support needs, right? So there was a real curiosity to understand life post-critical illness. Um, and then professionally, um, just, just reviewing the literature and seeing that there really was a glaring absence and that we don't really know actually what happens to these patients. So um, it kind of builds quite it will build quite nicely on clear my supervisors um study around their ICU experience so we're looking at the yeah. next stage yeah yeah so tell us about the gap in the evidence before we go on and talk about what how you're going to do this mm. so I guess so part of my PhD is that obviously I've had to conduct a literature review, right? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the first step. And evidence, the need for the study. And fundamentally what I found when I was exploring former long-term patients' experiences once discharged home is that 
there is very minimal literature whatsoever. There's a little bit more on family experiences, but again, it's really limited. Um, and so what, what I did discover though, is that um, they are left, they seem to be left with a legacy of problems and that recovery from ICU, from a long stay, um, is first of all, not guaranteed for these patients, um, but the pathway towards wellness, however people define that, is long and tiresome and burdensome for this patient group. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so like some of the themes that, that I discovered looking at the literature is that they are left with many enduring physical, cognitive, psychological legacies um, of severe critical illness and the spectrum is really diverse. Um, and then of course, because of their impairments, they still require care when they get home, right? Making them dependent on others. And usually it's family members, particularly spouses who, who have to assume this um, informal care giving role. Um, there's not a lot of support infrastructure out there right, as we know, certainly in New Zealand. Um, yeah, so they have unmet support needs. Um, the caregiver burden seems to be substantial. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's a role that neither the patient nor the caregiver ever possibly expected or wanted to have either, is it? So huge. Yeah, that's right. And actually um, looking at caregivers, family caregivers' experiences, you know, they describe that transition home as being um, really overwhelming and mm. being completely underprepared. You know, it's like this metamorphosis moment happens where they go from being a family member who visits in hospital mm. one day to all of a sudden they are now the primary caregiver once that patient is discharged home and they have had no preparation, no education, no skill development for what it is that they actually need to do yeah. Mm. yeah and they're still trying to kind of run normal life alongside yes that's right yeah mm. so how are you going to investigate this well I'm in the very early stages um but I am going to I think I've settled on narrative inquiry is my methodology um, and for your listeners who aren't familiar with this qualitative methodology, it's an approach to studying human lives that honours lived experience as a really important source of knowledge and understanding. Um, and fundamentally, patients' experiences and their words matter, right? And narrative inquiry privileges the voice of the patient. Um, and now I believe that this is particularly important for my study because long-term patients are a group of patients that are really voiceless, right, in ICU because of the tracheostomy, the prolonged dependence on mechanical ventilation, the ICU-acquired weakness. Um, so hearing their stories is important. Um, and I guess fundamentally I would, I would like to think that through this study, um, we can empower the voices of survivors and their families um, and allow them and their stories to inform future care and recovery interventions. Mm. Yeah. So do you yeah. think you'll focus just on what happens to them um, once they go home or do you think you're going to have to sort of talk about the whole? Well, I think that I'm probably going to need to... Um, to capture their experiences right from when they leave ICU, right? Especially that transition to the ward, because we know that that's a huge moment, actually. Um, yeah. and, and then at various stages across that year following discharge from ICU. Yeah, so not just at home is what I'm thinking at this stage. Mm. Yeah. And just the patients or will you look at interviewing? No, so I'm going to um, be uh, interviewing family members as well, right? Because family, yeah, family are 
are also effect, affected by this illness experience. Um, and, you know, my review of the literature on family and informal caregivers' experiences um, once discharged home really highlighted that, you know, there are negative um, effects on their health and well-being, um, mm -hmm. that the caregiver burden is substantial and that it affects their everyday lives, personal, social lives, um, and that the family have unmet support needs. So, yeah, exploring our New Zealand population of patients and families is going to be hopefully really valuable for us. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, you've talked a little bit about the implications of this work, um, yeah. but, you know, being able to bring it back to informing practice at the bedside Mm. while patients are with us um, mm. is going to be hugely valuable so yeah. well done oh we'll thank look you to seeing all the outputs oh, it's all a bit scary in the beginning you know you have that imposter syndrome and sort of think oh have I made the right decision but I've got a really great supervisory team um, who are very enthusiastic and encouraging and um, yeah I think it's important work um, mm. that needs to be done yeah yeah, and if you can see that as the end goal, then that helps yeah. kind of sustain you along the way too, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, how are you managing to fit all of this in and look after yourself <laughs> at the same time? Um, yeah, so far so good, right? I am working full time, um, but because my ICU shifts are 12-hour days, I actually work four days and then have a number of days off. Um but I'm thinking next year I, I want to move to reducing my FTE slightly, probably to 0.8, um, so that I can commit more time to my study, um, but also ensure that I have a really positive experience and that yeah. I don't burn out um, because I am loving it so far. You know, I sort of am thinking about my PhD as being my hobby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, just putting some strategies in place to ensure that I stay in the space really. Um, yeah, you know, I think it's really important. Yeah, little things like um, staying committed to the things that I know make me feel healthy and happy, such as a um, bit of exercise, eating good food, spending quality time with the people that I love. Um, yeah, making sure that you actually have fun and, um, I've got a few weekends booked away for the next over the next month. Um, yeah, so just maintaining that kind of bigger perspective. Yeah, I think that's really important because it shouldn't be um, a chore. You mm. know, it's um, one of those things that you do want to be able to enjoy as much as you can mm. along the way and get the most out of it. So yeah, yeah. well done. That's, yeah, no, and um, I've talked to a couple of people who have had really positive experiences, so, like, it can be done, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think, you know, all too often you just hear the horror stories, don't you? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is interesting because I am quite, I'm still quite reluctant to share with people, with certain people that I'm doing this study, because I think there's that idea out there that a PhD is you know hugely um laborious and mm. takes over your life and it's and don't get me wrong it's a major academic commitment mm. um but you know your experience is what you make it and yeah, yeah. I mean I was sort of a little bit like that when I started mine and I was of the opinion that I had to make it work for me, not the other way around. Yeah. And that I wasn't going to be up at 3 a.m. in tears on the computer. Yeah. Um, yep. So I think, you know, setting yourself up as best as you can from the beginning. And it, like you say, having that amazing supervisory team around you yeah. mm. um, really helps with all of that too. And I think ICU nurses are probably quite well placed to do <laughs> study like yes. that because, you know, we like our lists and our tasks yeah. and our timelines. We're organised. We can roll up our sleeves and get get work done. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Having having a social support network is, is key as well. Um, mm. You know, my partner's fantastic. Um, so, 
Yeah. At home doing the cleaning today. He is. He is. Yeah, yeah. Friday's his day off, and I don't get Fridays off. So um, on Fridays, he does the housework for me. (laughs) Which is there's a tip for everyone. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Mm. Oh no! Look, it's fantastic to hear all about it and to see you know your enthusiasm for the topic and for the care of our longer term patients too. So the you know what you come out of this with is just going to be fascinating to read and will add hugely to the evidence that we do have available to us but particularly from a a uniquely New Zealand perspective as Mm. well which would be great Mm -hmm. thank you thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed that I love the idea that long-term patients can provide nurses with a real sense of fulfillment and how the important it is for us to remember that the nurse can be the difference between a good day and a bad day for that patient. We can never underestimate the therapeutic role we play as nurses. Take good care, everyone. Thank you for joining us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. Thanks for joining us. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you are enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy and who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.